We're looking forward to that. Let's join in prayer and ask the Lord's guidance as we study the scriptures together. Our God, we come to you as the needy, those who used to be without hope, without God in the world. We had no way to achieve the righteousness which you required, that which could only be credited to us by faith and the righteous one, the Lord Jesus. We could never work our way into your presence. We are the unworthy but the called according to your purpose. We ask that you would give us insight into the word of God, that we would be humble hearers that would be activated by the Spirit of God to apply it, to look for the implications of the text to our lives, that you might raise us to great heights of adoration and worship and grateful service. As Paul bears his soul this morning in his little autobiography in the beginning of Titus, might we find great treasures in your word, and as you teach us, might we be astute to respond appropriately. In Christ's name we praise you, amen. I'd invite you to join me in Titus chapter 1. I do not promise that we will get very far in this uh, study this morning. I think that, uh, by my own confession, uh, I think that very often in my history banks, I have been too quick. We, we are tempted to read through Scripture too fast, to miss far too much. And so as we look at this salutation in Titus, we find ourselves like Titus was greeted by grace. It is only appropriate that we, as we just celebrated Reformation Sunday last week, in studying sola scriptura, to look through the lens of sola gratia, Grace alone. There is one book that uh, is in the uh, bulletin front this morning that I was glad to see this morning when I came to the worship service this morning to find out that our book nook is empty of, and that is a book by R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God. When you bring up the subject of either politics or predestination. They both begin with P. You either pucker or duck. Uh, the struggle with election and predestination, there are discussions that often elicit argument and possibly more heat than light. Many would, uh, when they contemplate election, they take a fatalistic view that if you believe in election, that man is reduced, uh, in, in a fatalistic view, man is reduced to a puppet. That God is a sort of diabolical deity playing a capricious game with man's life. Let's leave that for Greek mythology and capricious gods. The most famous teacher of this doctrine might be Calvin, though he didn't invent it. Uh, he had predecessors like Luther, Augustine, or how about the Bible? I remember going through a Q&A one time at a, uh, with a pastoral search committee and uh, as the church was grilling me to find out if they wanted me to uh, be a pastor, well, you might as well lodge the ball of election at this guy that we're considering. And uh, what do you believe about election? I said, well, I believe what Paul taught about election. Well, that can be very vague. Virtually every Christian church 
has some formal doctrine of election, but what do you mean when you say election? You can't ignore such well-known passages as Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You don't get very far through Ephesians 1 before you're confronted head-on with election, predestination. Being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. When life is difficult and we're contemplating the mysteries of God and what God is trying to accomplish through suffering and trials and difficulty. Many of us have committed Romans 8.28 to memory. For we know that all things work together for good. That, but to say Romans 8.28 is to also confess Romans 8.29 that God is not just using the good but the ill in life to conform us to the image of Christ. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Romans 8.29 There are many variant views which would either distort or ignore the word rather than seeking to sort out accurately what God means by what He says when He introduces us to this doctrine of election. Like I said, there were many men before Calvin that just taught the Bible. And many since him have been faithful reaching out in our own day of Schaefer, Piper, Ferguson. You can The, the list goes on infinitum. We ought to be concerned to think through God's sovereignty and just as quick to be concerned about God's freedom as we are about man's freedom when we're talking about it and interacting with each other. That it's not just an issue about the free will of man. If you do reject absolute sovereignty, what we are doing is embracing atheism. Because part of the tenet of God being God is that He is sovereign. He is creator. He is the absolute authority with absolute power, limitless control. And to, so to strip God of His sovereignty is to strip God of His godness. We need to ask some of the hard questions. Even ones that we don't like to think about. Like, is there really any reason that a righteous God ought to be loving towards a creature who hates Him and rebels constantly against His divine authority and holiness? God is not required to seek our permission to do as He wishes. Maybe we ought to look at through the lens of the sinner in hell asking the question, God, if you really loved me, why didn't you coerce me to believe and go against my will? I'd rather my free will be violated than be here in eternal torment out of your presence. So again, what's, what's wrong with God creating faith in the heart of a sinner, instigating salvation, making it all possible and a reality, bringing it to pass? I would commend R.C.'s book, which would do far better than me, to help you walk through some of the sticky issues around the topic of predestination and election. Would you join me in Titus 1? You might be wondering, uh, why is Parker going on about election? Titus 1, 1. As the apostle identifies himself, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those, there it is, chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, 
To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. When you write a letter, you've learned how to write letters, haven't you? You begin with a salutation. You address the person, whether it's the, the most right reverend potentate or whoever, or dear sirs. Letters begin with a salutation, which in Paul's case here is a single sentence running through verse 4. The only one longer in the Pauline corpus of the New Testament is in Romans 1. This is a greeting which is quite biographical, or shall we say autobiographical, with most of the opening verses on Paul the writer. So let's look at, in this salutation, Paul the writer and then the uh, addressee or the recipient uh, that we don't get to until verse number four. The writer. And as you think about Paul along the way he identifies himself here in the text, his position is given with two designations, which we would do well not to skip over too quickly, like as I've already confessed to you, and you would probably confess to me that we are quite hasty to do, skip over quickly. He identifies himself as Paul, a bondservant of God. God's slave, in other words. Paul's exact phrase is used nowhere else by Paul, being a slave of God. Usually it's the slave of Jesus Christ. And we could look at Romans 1 or Galatians 1 or Philippians 1 for that designation. But here he identifies himself as the writer, a doulos, a slave of God. The esteemed apostle Paul pictures himself as the most menial slave of New Testament times indicating his complete and willing servitude to the Lord by whom all believers have been bought with a price. Therefore, they are to glorify God in their body and their souls which are His. A slave, by definition, is one who gives himself up wholly to another's will. By definition, we are talking about one who sold himself into utter servitude and submission to the will of another. That does not sound like those who just want to add Jesus to their life that they've made for themselves as long as he doesn't meddle with it too much and will follow to the extent that it helps them as long as not too much is required. Unlike people who are uncomfortable with slave talk, Paul was not one of them. Paul was unabashed in identifying himself as a slave, along with his fellow laborers, fellow laborers like Epaphras in Colossians 4.12, Timothy in Philippians 1.1, and all who serve Christ, 2 Timothy 2.24. We are all slaves of the Lord Jesus, slaves of God if you've come to Him in faith. In fact, he went so far as to make the gospel family connection of becoming a slave to others for Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4.5. Have you indentured yourself in service to your fellow believer in the family of God? So connect the dots logically and theologically and just a little point of application. This is a radical approach to life and ministry, is it not? It is not a take-it-or-leave-it mentality of the church. Filter in and filter out. We're talking about the appropriate response given that Christ emptied Himself, taken the form of a what? Slave, Philippians 2, 7. And is worthy of everything that I am and have. And to His beloved that He gave His life for. So, Paul addresses this letter as one who is a slave of God. Second designation, 
Christ's apostle. So he's God's slave and he's Christ's apostle. And as you've no doubt heard before, this refers to one sent with a message and endowed with the full authority of the sender in delivering it. Paul used this term frequently as a humble expression marking his submission to Christ. He identifies himself as such in the first chapter and verse of each of his epistles. This was an... I, you've got... You, basically can't have one without another, that because he was a slave of Jesus, by God's grace and sovereign wisdom, God also made him an apostle. This is being an extension of his enslavement to God. It's that which came with great authority, great responsibility, great sacrifice. You look at what he went through in laboring and toiling night and day that Christ would be Christ's image would be made in his hearers. So in, in a way, he bowed beneath the will of God as a slave and yet was raised by God and sent on a mission of the highest priority. And, and, and while we're here making some connections of this slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, it's not like those are polar opposites and contrasts, but fleshing out each other. They are used interchangeably. Whether Paul were to designate himself as a slave of Jesus Christ or a slave of God, it makes no difference. He uses God and Christ Jesus interchangeably indicating His affirmation of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And he'll continue this pattern throughout the book of Titus. Look for it in verse 4. Look for it in chapter 2, verse 13. And notice as he identifies himself as a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, it's not without a purpose. Here is why he was designated as such. For... That little Greek word kauta with the accusative points towards the end or, or what was aimed at, the goal toward which he had worked. He's a slave of salvation and an apostle of the good news for the purpose of this, namely, these next two phrases. Here's why he was an apostle. It's for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Faith of God's elect, and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In essence, Paul's ministry, in a nutshell, was aimed at both salvation and sanctification of God's people. Not one at the expense of the other. We evangelize and so that God might save sinners and produce in them sanctified disciples of Jesus Christ. The direction and the goal of his entire apostleship was to this end, namely this first phrase, the faith of God's elect. This speaks in theological designation of those that God has claimed for Himself. Those whom he has chosen. That's the title of R.C.'s book. You know, it's like, Sproul, why don't you get a more original title? You don't get any more original than what's inspired by God. Chosen of God. When we greet each other, we accurately in our theological parsing could identify each other. If you've, come, if you've turned from your sin and embraced Christ alone for your salvation and you are the elect of God, we can greet each other. Good morning, elect of God. The faith of God's elect. Like those whom He's chosen from the generality of mankind and drawn to Himself. And so Paul calls attention to God's activity in human salvation known as election. These are those who have been graciously chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world, says Paul in Ephesians 1.4. 
Those that must respond to the message by exercising personal faith prompted and empowered by the Spirit. We must always call to remembrance that God's choice always precedes and enables our choosing of Him. Don't put the cart before the horse. Jesus in John 15:16 could not get clearer when he says, "You did not choose me. Who chose who? Who chose who? Get my grammar straight. You didn't choose me." He said, "I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit." So I guess we could say that, you know, that election is not a Pauline, necessarily a Pauline doctrine. This is, this, is, this is God's Word from His own beloved Son. And if we were to let other writers of the New Testament share in this, we'd have to uh, include Luke in the lot in Acts 13. Acts 13, as he's giving a history, a running narrative of the gospel reaching out through the power of the Holy Spirit and drawing sinners to Himself. In Acts 13, verses 46 to 48, when Paul recounts what it was like when others were believing, notice there in Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They were preaching the gospel. And they said this, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What's the context? The gospel went first to the Jew, then to the Greek. And since the Hebrews hardened their heart, the gospel message went out. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as, has appointed, and as, many as had been appointed for eternal life believed. That's a proper response to the doctrine of election. That God was so gracious, God was so kind to bring His gospel to me, a sinner, a rebel against His cause, one who was dead in my transgressions and sins, who He made alive. It produces humility, it produces worship, it produces lives of gratitude and service. They rejoice and glorified because the good news came, there was a response by God's elect. Probably one of the Mount Everest passages on this doctrine would be in Romans 9. We wouldn't have the time to sit and meditate and read through all the verses, but just a, a sampling in verse number 15 of Romans 9. As Paul lays out his argument, he says, he, capital H, God speaking through Moses, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for common use? 
I love that illustration that really, really God's object lesson of the, of the potter and the wheel that he maintains total control and he'll decide whether it's a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. When we were being schooled in pottery at Sturbridge Village this week, you got the, the good ones that are on display waiting to go in the kiln once or twice a year and then they've got all the broken ones in the trash heap. Well, since we're in the pastoral epistles in Titus, he says in his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, as he's talking to one who is prone to timidity, to Timothy himself, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We didn't work our way to God. He worked his will in us. And there in the next chapter, in verse number 10, 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of, the, of, of those who are chosen, the chosen, the elect of God, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. God was so gracious to take the persecutor of the church, the one who is slaughtering Christians and save his sin-sick soul. Paul, a picture of all of lost humanity in rebellion against God. And then he upped it another level. Not only did Paul have the privilege of having his payment for sin settled with Christ and escaping the fires of hell for the just torment but God mercied him, putting him in the ministry. That the blasphemer God would use to bless his church. So God was using Paul to call out a people for himself. Nowhere is that more clearly seen. If you wanted to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, another place in which Paul and his gospel enterprise visited the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, meet me in verse 2. As they're rejoicing together here, they say, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. There's that camaraderie and gospel fellowship and service. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake." You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves reported about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living, serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What's Paul recounting? As they reflect upon his gospel ministry, his missionary endeavor, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, came preaching the good news, scattering the seed far and wide. God was so pleased to draw sinners, his elect ones, to himself, guaranteeing salvation. It was obvious throughout all the area as they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And God's faithful servant was activated. His called out sinners are being activated through the work of the Spirit of God because God's word.
Word was active in their lives. And again, lest you think this is just a Pauline doctrine, we'd already looked at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 15. I'd mentioned verse 16. Not too long ago in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we found ourselves in chapter 22. And verse number 14, where Jesus said, Many are called, few are chosen. Against the mass of humanity, yes, God is calling sinners to Himself. The way is narrow. There are few that find it. But those few are guaranteed to come. So as Paul just piggybacks on the way his Savior did ministry, such is the pattern for us to follow. As we think about ministry, as we think about outreach to Newtown, Sandy Hook, Danbury, Croatia through ministry enterprise, through the Master's Seminary and training a man for ministry out there, as we think about evangelism, we evangelize, we concentrate on faithfulness to the gospel, that the Spirit will use the message and preach to call sinners to repentance, that they might begin their work of sanctification through the Spirit's aid, in which we will aid in teaching them to observe all things and making them active disciples of Jesus Christ. We scatter that He might gather. We concentrate, we, we focus on faithfulness. God focuses on the fruitfulness. That leads us to our second phrase of why Paul was called out as an apostle of Jesus. Not only to tend to the faith of the elect, those chosen of God, but extends to the knowledge of the truth which is according, in accord to godliness. Knowledge of the truth leading to godliness. Unless you read through that phrase too quick, notice every word there. The knowledge of the truth. Notice definite article. There is a definite body of truth established by God as the unique and the only truth. Notice that this is of grave concern to Paul throughout his pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We're talking about in the age of, of many Gospels, many people standing at what they say are the gates to heaven which only lead to hell. Many false Gospels. But we hold to the gospel truth, the saving message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that saving truth that leads to godliness and only that message. Let's look at it through this angle, through this lens. The Christian life is all about knowledge. It doesn't stop there, but it's all about it. Knowledge of the truth. You cannot do the truth without knowing the truth. This is a favorite term in the Pauline writings. It rightly speaks of a full, precise, and complete knowledge. When he talks about the knowledge of the truth. That's the knowledge. A.W. Tozer aptly commented in his day, he said, the Christian is strong or weak depending upon how closely he has cultivated the knowledge of God. Paul was anything but an advocate of the once done automatic school of Christianity. He devoted his whole life to the art of knowing Christ. Side note, Philippians 3 here. Progression in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. And such experience requires a whole life devoted to it and plenty of time spent at the holy task of cultivating God. God can be known satisfactorily only as we devote time to Him. 
This is why your pastors have been putting together a questionnaire to find out how can we as ministers of the gospel, equippers that God's given to His church, help you in your knowledge of the truth, come alongside and shepherd your souls. Because the disciplined study of the knowledge of truth is necessary to convince our minds and our hearts. It starts by unpacking our fallen condition, our absolute total bankruptcy outside of Him, our, our total depravity. It includes God's higher purposes and plans for us, and therefore our desperate need for change. If I could do a quick one-stop, five-second commercial for our discipleship counseling class Tuesday, it's all about change. Why do we do it? Why do we invest the time and the energy and the resources in it? Because we want to help God's people in the process of change into the image of Christ. Because, beloved, the truth has a definite content. And it has distinct parameters around it. It's not a speculative or philosophical nature, but it is in accord with godliness. Only this knowledge of the truth leads to it. Yes, I'll concede that knowledge can be misused. To quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 8:1, yes, knowledge can make arrogant. Knowledge puffeth up. But the purpose, the intent of full knowledge of the truth is that our lives be marked by this one central virtue, godliness. This word we've looked at before, Eusebia, used often by Paul in the pastoral epistles, but never outside the pastoral epistles. You're not going to find this godliness. You'll, you might find some kernels of its essence, but it's not used outside the pastorals. It describes the, the outward visible witness of a genuine faith and reverence for God. Can we even make another side note, point of application here? Beloved, do not confide yourself in the fact that you go to a church that exalts the truth in life and ministry. Though that's good and right and appropriate. You're merely on the right path. You still need to apply yourself to grow, to nurture, to produce gospel-centered fruit to the glory of God. That's why elsewhere in the pastorals, in, in the pastorals Paul will say, discipline yourself unto godliness. It doesn't just happen. You don't get the spiritual zap. It's nowhere to be found. And the basic axiom of life is that time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, you're going to know the truth about if you know the truth, it's going to be played out in life. The false teachers of Paul's day, like many of our day, could with wrong motives try to imitate it, but could not produce it. Through false doctrines and Wrong exegesis that you might call eisegesis, reading into the text what God is not saying. Doesn't produce godliness. But here, Paul has the real deal in view. Truth-based faith, though spiritual and though inward, is never invisible. Time and truth go hand in hand. If you know the truth, you'll do the truth. It is manifest in appropriate life actions if it's the full knowledge of the truth. You know, an unsanctified person can quote you Scripture. An ungodly person can read John Owen. But the truth, the true truth of God Knowledge of the true truth leads to godliness. The ever-quotable Vance Havner, in seeking to describe the church as it has ignored the necessity of progressing in faith from knowledge to godliness, said it this way, quote, He said, We are challenged these days 
but not changed. Convicted, but not converted. We hear, but do not, and thereby we deceive ourselves. You know, one final note before we move on here. This is, this is what Peter is getting at in his second epistle. In, in uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11, it affirms that cultivation of godliness eventually evidences itself. If, if you have responded to divine election, it shows in an increasing growth in godliness. Notice with this Next prepositional phrase that Paul uses here, what this faith and knowledge rests upon in verses 2 and 3. And I know that we've been going slow. We'll pick up the speed a little bit here. This next phrase he uses, in the hope of eternal life. Paul, as we are, was a minister of hope with the message that he brought. This was his commission. When God commissioned him as an apostle of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we proclaim. God's promise of eternal life guaranteed to all believers is what provides us with endurance. It's what makes us hold up without falling apart in endurance and patience. If we had time, we'd, we'd go through the panoply of New Testament passages that teach this. That when the gospel takes root the roots of growth are within us because it's rooted in hope. In the hope of eternal life. This preposition suggests that hope is the substructure of which all the Christian life. So the contrary could be said. That if we're not pursuing godliness and we're seeking to feed the flesh and our own panderings against the knowledge of the truth, there's not going to be this hope. We're going to be constantly floundering and questioning and wondering. There are many aspects unrealized in this life in the flesh on fallen earth. But we must Remember, this is the present possession of believers. Not that we have Christ, but that He has us. That is our hope. That is the bedrock of our, our assurance. It's not speculation. I, I, I kind of like uh, when, when we hope that the Red Sox win or something. This is, this is a no-so hope. And note the connection Paul's making here with the present hope. This is what we live in today. It's not something for tomorrow. Present hope of future assurance is based on historic fact. Notice his argument here. He says, we're living in the hope of eternal life today, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You notice some of the connections he's making here? He'd already upheld the past reality in reference to the elect of God. They were well familiar with the strong Old Testament overtones when he identified himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think of slave of God or elected God. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this former phrase of slave of God of the nation of Israel as a whole. When God elected a nation, when she wasn't a nation... And he made her a nation. It's used of key leaders throughout her history of, of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Elijah. The Septuagint also uses that phrase, chosen of God, the elect of God, both in reference to the nation, individuals like Abraham and David. When Paul unpacks for us when salvation plan took root in the mind of God. He says in Ephesians 1 that, that, that uh, He chose a people when they were not a people. Before you and I were ever born. Before the beginning of time. You might look at it this way. Promises made 
equates to promises kept. That the same God of the older covenant is the God of the new covenant. That as God chose a people who were not a people, so He chooses a people who were not a people of His. And He gives them hope. And He brings it all the way to fruition because He cannot lie. He anchors it in His own character. This is to say nothing about His further choice of the church in Colossians and 2 Thessalonians and Peter and Revelation. The church is to be God's glory made visible as they are growing in their godliness and growing in their holiness and growing in their sanctification. So when Paul comes along and he pens this epistle to Titus and thus to his church today, okay, what the church is, what he expects from it, he's not setting himself apart as a, as a new sect, as the elite, but he links arms with the past. Our present hope anchored in the God who cannot lie, promised in long ages ago. But in the proper time, made it manifest. Even His Word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. His message was not original. It wasn't novel. It was connected to the previous promises of God. So he links arms with faithful men of his Jewish forefathers. He was in line with Israel's most faith-filled leaders. That says much for his, the authority he wielded as an apostle. He spoke in line with them. So he's linked, even here in verse 2, with the common expectation of those chosen by God, for whose sake he was chosen as an apostle. And as sure as God's plan of salvation for sinful man was determined and decreed before man was ever created. Anchored in the bedrock of a promise that the Father made the Son, it will go all the way. Without hiccup. Without stumbling. Without a getting caught part way. Salvation was purposed and it was settled before creation. Christ was, was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, we're told in Revelation 13.8. And even though the, the clear public revelation wasn't made till the fullness of time was come, God started to reveal some of the mystery which in the older covenant was not as clear. When God ushered His Son into time in the flesh as the God-man, He constituted the visible fulfillment of God's promise of eternal life. He sent His Son as Savior. In His work, He accomplished salvation for those who believe. Offering not a potential salvation, but a real, he secured salvation. He made a done deal as if you and I were already alive at the time. And rebelling against him that he died for us when we were yet sinners. So God is the source. God is the initiator. God is the implementer. And God is the guarantor of salvation. Starting a work. Continuing a work. Bringing it all the way through glorification. What a glorious reality. Though there is mystery with this doctrine, unfortunately, many either neglect it or deny it. They neglect it or deny it because they, they, they pose questions like, well, what's that do for evangelism? If, if, if salvation's of God... Well, maybe we start with evangelism being commanded in Scripture. Maybe we continue with evangelism being demonstrated by example in Scripture. That it is a privilege and an obligation of every believer that if you were one beggar seeking to find bread for your soul, you tell other beggars where to find bread. He's the living Word 
who came in the flesh. In this dynamic that Paul capitalizes, he says in the proper time, it was manifested, this message, even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Preaching continues the offer of the promise to all people till his return. Taking us back to the Word, taking us to preaching, keeping us to the commandment of God. God's Word is the sole source of the content for all faithful preaching and teaching. This word, kerygma, proclamation, both speaks to the content of what we say and how we say it. We're commanding mankind to repent, to turn to Jesus It's still the means God uses to call His elect to Himself. It's a foolish message, Paul says to the Corinthians. A crucified Savior, yes, that's who we take to the world, who rose again from the grave, proving He defeated it. So many passages run to mind about where, where has the preaching of the knowledge of the truth leading to godliness gone in our age. We'd mentioned about Reformation Sunday last week. 497th anniversary on Friday of Martin Luther nailing his theses to the castle door of Wittenberg saying, I, I will not recant unless the Scriptures convince me otherwise. You cannot sell indulgences to merit favor with God. John Broadness, a noted 19th century professor, offered four distinguishing marks of the Reformation. Why did God work so miraculously and so visibly so that the ripples are felt today in 2014? He offers four marks. Number one was the revival of preaching. The revival of preaching. Giving preaching the central place in the church, not subordinating it to the mass and rituals and ceremonies. Brada said, number one power of the Reformation was the, was the revival of preaching, but it wasn't just any preaching. It was, second of all, revival of biblical preaching. There's no shortage of preaching today, especially with the internet and podcasts. We might even say there's too much preaching that's not biblical. So he said the revival of biblical preaching. When we say biblical preaching, we're saying it's expository preaching. It's informed by the original languages. It's, it's addressing uh, an actual history of the day and using the very grammar so that we can stop and look at the, the words that are used and how they're organized on the page before us. It was a revival of biblical preaching Excuse me, a revival of preaching. It was a revival of biblical preaching. Thirdly, says Broadus, it was a revival of controversial preaching. Uh, I, I guess that since we mentioned election this morning, this would qualify. When we say that it, the Reformation was a revival of controversial preaching, the Reformers maintained not only sola scriptura, but tota scriptura. The whole counsel of God. Even the difficult, sticky sections, the problem passages, every hard saying being explained and every sin being exposed, the full counsel to awake a slumbering church, disrupting the status quo of its day, critical issues being confronted and sacred cows being butchered to the glory of God. God awakened a revival of preaching, a revival of biblical preaching, a revival of controversial preaching, and fourthly, a revival of preaching on the doctrines of grace. You might wonder, oh, why you get so excited behind the sacred desk when you talk about doctrines of grace? We're talking about God's divine sovereignty and human salvation since it's, it's so often re repeated in Scripture. There was a revival of the doctrines of grace. And yet the church of our day settles for junk food. In his excellent book, 
toward an exegetical theology, Walt Kaiser writes, it is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She's been languishing because she's been fed, as the current line has it, junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. And you uh, people into natural pathic and eat, eat and write uh, this, this quote really jives with your soul, I know. He says, as a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that's are, that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. Simultaneously, a worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God continues to run wild and almost unabated in most quarters of the church. Unquote. So the Apostle Paul, the slave of God and Apostle of Jesus Christ, comes to Titus, he comes to the church, Addressing the faith of the chosen of God. Equipping the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. And only that means which leads to godliness. What a privileged time in this proper time. And he writes it to Titus. My true child in the common faith, grace and peace, he prays to be multiplied in Titus's life. His spiritual son, that's who he addresses this to, a true believer in Christ, like Timothy. Whether Paul was directly responsible for his conversion or just a mentor-protege relationship, or maybe it's both, he gives this precious gift to Titus, his, this precious gift to his church. Paul outlined the need for truth. The need to establish strong leadership he addresses the Christian's call to godliness and the essential nature of the church and the life of believers. And as Titus was commissioned on the Isle of Crete, both in describing qualifications for elders who would lead as well as the confrontation of those who would spread false doctrines and brought division, there was a need for truth. There was a need for godliness. So both Orthodoxy of belief and changed life that validates the power and the truth of God. This is God's grace that He's given us. That He entrusted Paul and others who would follow His example with. Paul unpacks grace's measure in the beginning of verse 1. As one who breathed out threats was saved. The worst of sinners got saved and He mercied me, putting me into service. And he not only helps us see grace's measure, but in that same verse, grace's means, his, uh, his purpose of apostleship was to develop saving faith, originating in the eternal purposes of God and his elective love based on his mercy, not on their merits. And in verses 2 through 3, grace's duration. Promises made then are promises kept today and throughout eternity. And how about grace's effect in the life of this young preacher, Titus? This common faith that brings grace and faith to those who receive it by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that if there is not faithfulness, we will be as a church entangled in false ideas and systems, systems that will fail us, systems that will not lead to godliness. And we know that Paul's age had the Judaizers, those who would mix law with grace, There was churches needing the order, needing biblical structure according to your mandates, and so Titus was to establish those. He was to warn of false teachers. 
He was to unpack the true meaning of grace in the life of a Christian, drinking deeply at the wells of your grace. He was to help the church become healthy because it partook in healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, leading to sound living. Might we bear the marks of what Paul wrote to Titus as we delve into this study of various weeks from this sacred desk that we look at this epistle produce holiness in our lives. Make us a healthy church. Thank you for your grace in the life of Paul. Thank you for grace in the life of Titus. We thank you for intervening grace in our own lives of salvation and service here at this church. Might you and you alone receive all the glory for your grace so poured out in abundance in our lives. We'll praise you in the matchless name of your Son who came in the fullness of times. It's in his beloved name we pray. Amen.